And there's a couple reasons why we didn't start at the beginning of the parsha today. One of which is today's message is going to come from the portion we read from. In other words, I was getting my, giving my readers a week off, give them a break. And because of that, and because of you know my copious spare time that I have to prepare everything, that, that message happens to be very much ingrained in my brain because my very first bar mitzvah that I brought through the process was on this reading. So I had to hear him read it over and over and over again. Wrong, not so wrong, and finally, correctly. So I've heard all versions of that reading. Um, Fortunately, I didn't do the wrong, wrong that he started out with. So, kitetse means when you go out. And of all the parshot, this one contains more commandments than all the others. There's about 72, to, depending on who's counting, 72 to 74 have been numbered in Kitetse. No other parsha has that many. Now, some of the Jewish scholars, you know how scholars can be sometimes, they get very brainy. They've counted and attempted to catalog all of the 613 mitzvot. Ramban, in his book, Sefer HaMitzvot, Book of the Commandments, he actually separated them into two groups. One, the mitzvot aseh, which were the positive commandments, the ones that say, you shall do something. He numbered those at 248. Then the other group was the mitzvot lo taseh, which are the negative commandments, the ones that start with, you shall not do something. And he numbered those at 365. So the sages, in their infinite wisdom, tried to make something from this. So what they said is the positive commandments equal the total number of bones in the human body. Anybody that ever studied anatomy knows it's actually 206. But for the sake of what their example was and their explanation was, we'll go with what they say. And the 365 negative commandments correspond to each day of the solar year. So, yeah, they're off by about four dozen on the uh, other count, but that's okay. Their point is well taken. Their point is we're supposed to follow and worship God with all our being all every bone in our body, every organ in our body, every day of the year. So it's a good point to consider. I just wish they had thought that through a little more on the numbers, but that's fine. So chapter 21 begins with the first command that says, When you go out to war against your enemies, and Adonai your God hands them over to you, and you take them captive, suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman. And you desire her and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you are to bring her into your house, and she must shave her head, trim her nails, and remove her captive's clothing, and sit in your house and weep for her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may go to her and become her husband, and she will be your wife. Now, if you are not pleased with her, 
Then you may send her off wherever she wishes. But you must certainly not sell her for silver. You may not treat her as merchandise since you have humiliated her. The whole concept is make her look as unattractive as possible. So you have to see her at her least attractive state for a full month. If you still find her attractive and want to make her your wife, you can. But the reason why you don't send her out and pay, send her out and sell her is the humiliation comes in because you did make her unattractive. You shaved her head. So that's the whole thinking there is don't dishonor her by selling her after you say, eh, you know what, she's not as attractive as I thought she was. I don't want her as a wife. Then we continue with the rights of the firstborn. Suppose a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved. And both the loved and unloved bear him sons. But it happens that the firstborn son belongs to the unloved wife. Now on the day he lets his sons inherit what he has, he must not treat the loved one's wife as firstborn in place of the unloved one's son, who is the firstborn. Rather, he must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the hated one, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first of his vigor. The right of the firstborn is his. Verse 18 begins where we read this morning. And we're instructed to do something to a stubborn and rebellious son. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not listen to the voice of his father or mother. They discipline him, but he does not listen to them. Then his father and his mother are to grab hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the, the gate of his place. They will say to the elders of this, his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He does not listen to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. All the men of his city are to stone him with stones to death. So you will purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. I've mentioned in the past that this particular passage, there's no record of anyone ever following through on this commandment and having a son stoned to death. So why is it there? If it's not going to happen. Why mention a commandment that won't be carried out? I, you can suppose possibly it just be the mention of the commandment would keep a child in line. Let's go on. Like most civilizations and even religions, Judaism has some controversial text. I mean, how many have read through some of the commandments and wondered why? For most people, this attitude towards a stubborn and rebellious son is a little bit problematic. How can you stone a young man to death? Does the punishment fit the crime? I mean, that's the reasoning we use in our society. And they probably went through a lot of that back then. So throughout the Torah, there are laws that might seem inappropriate, especially in our time. And that's logical to consider because the Torah was written in a different time. There were other attitudes back then. We don't use stoning, not here, um, as a way of punishment. We don't use that. 
other cultures? They do. Today, we actually believe that the world is round. There was a time people thought it was flat. And there are those today that believe that we evolved over billions of years. We don't happen to believe that, but that's a common thread in our society, our belief system in the, in the country we live in and the world that we live in. There are some that believe in that. And we believe that there are nine planets in our solar system. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's only eight because Pluto's been, Pluto's been disavowed. Okay. In, in some circles, it's still disavowed. So, even though we don't understand everything about our physical world, we understand, we hope we understand more than our ancestors did. Right? Maybe. So, maybe those understandings have an impact on us when we read Torah. So what happens when the sacred text becomes problematic? The Torah itself actually sheds light on that. Last week in Parshat Shoftim, we read about different court cases where we can't easily resolve the dispute. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read, Suppose a matter arises that is too hard for you to judge over bloodshed, legal claims or assault, matters of controversy within your gates. Then you should go up to the place Adonai your God chooses and come to the Levitical Kohanim and the judge in charge at that time. And you will inquire, and they will tell you the sentence of judgment. You are to act according to the sentence that they tell you from that place Adonai chooses and take care to do all they instruct you. You are to act according to the instruction they teach you and the judgment they tell you you must not turn aside from the sentence they tell you, Yamim Ushmol, from the right to the left. So we must do what our judges or our sages say. We can't deviate in any direction from their decision. Not to the right, not to the left. This phrase, the right and to the left, is very interesting. Because it led the sages to explain further on the verse. Rashi says, one must follow the words of the judges even if the judge declares right, left, and left, right. He explains that these words, Yamimu Shmol, should be an indication of the power of the judges. And he concludes that the judges must be followed even if it is counterintuitive. Even if they declare that your right hand is your left or your left hand is your right, something that is obviously incorrect, we still follow them. It almost doesn't make sense. But that's what Rashi said. Ramban says this. Even if you know in your heart that the judges are wrong, you must listen to them. That is the power of their office. They determine halakha, Jewish law. In the course of Jewish history, the Talmud Chakam, which is the student of the wise teacher or rabbi, assumed the role of the judges who would adjudicate halakha. And the authority to create halakha, Jewish law, creates the real meaning of the Torah by 
deciding the law. Not too much different than our Supreme Court. Here's an example of how the sages create this real meaning of halakha. The Talmud asks, how can we recite the blessing who has sanctified us with God's commandments and commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah lights? How can we recite this blessing for Hanukkah, they ask. Hanukkah arrives in Jewish history long after the Torah and God's revelation. How can we possibly claim, they asked, that God commanded us to light the Hanukkah lights when we know that it was the sages who prescribed this mitzvah? Rabbi Avya says that we can recite this blessing and claim that God commanded us to light the Hanukkah lights. His source is the verse, Lo tasur min hadavar asher yagidu lecha yamin u shmo. You must not turn aside from the sentence they tell you to the right or to the left. Now, Rabbi Avyahu, who is a rabbinic scholar from Germany, he claims that because our great sages designated Hanukkah lights as a mitzvah, it is as if God commanded it. And therefore, not only can we recite the blessing, Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvah Tav Vitzivanu, who has sanctified us, with God's commandments and commanded us, but we must recite this. We must acknowledge God's involvement in the mitzvah of the Hanukkah lights because the sages ordained it. Ramban actually codifies this as law and says, whatever the sages say, you must do. Okay. Now, even though this Hanukkah example indicates the power of the, this legal principle, there's actually another side to this subject about right and left. The Jerusalem Talmud has a different view. It says, you might think that when they tell you right is left and left is right, you should listen to them. No. The Torah comes to teach us that only when they claim that right is right and left is left should we listen to them. So, only when something is true to us should we accept it? But this contradicts all the other opinions, the other sages. So the Jer Jerusalem Talmud says we should listen to the sages only when they are speaking the truth as we understand it. So in the other examples, we are told that we're supposed to listen to them even when they're saying something that seems very unreasonable. Or as Rashi puts it, counterintuitive. So which is it? Do we follow the sages all the time or only when we think that they are correct? Look back again at the Torah. The case of the stubborn and rebellious son might help us understand how this theory of law from Shoftin applies to this week's parasha from last week. So once again, from last week's parasha, lo tasur min hadavar asher yagidu lecha yamin shall You must not turn aside from the sentence they tell you to the right or to the left. The law in today's text seems to be clear. Then all the men of his city are to stone him with stones to death. No ambiguity there. I've read several translations and all of them say the same thing. You're supposed to put him to death by stoning. And we know 
We must follow the law. But what do our sages say about this law? See, our sages weren't comfortable with the law of the stubborn and rebellious son. Just like I'm sure you wouldn't be very comfortable with it if it actually came to be. They wanted to limit its impact. So here's what they did. Ready for it? The Midrash and the Talmud applied this law to a son for only three months after he has turned 13. And then only after he has devoured semi-cooked meat and also drunk partially mixed wine before a group that does not include even one decent person. This cannot be on a religious occasion. He must pay for the food with his father's money and consume it in his father's domain. This can occur only when both parents are living and are not deaf, mute, blind, lame, or maimed in the hand. And only if both parents agree to prosecute him. Wow. The Talmud then goes on to declare, Ben sorer umore lo hayav lo atid leheyot. A stubborn and rebellious son, the one that deserves the death penalty, there never was such a case, and there never will be. So it's clear that the rabbis edit out the problematic halakha from tradition. What's written in black and white in the Torah is cleverly defined out of existence. It's still there, but they say that this is a reason why you don't enforce it. So the, the whole theory of lotasur min hadavara sher yagidu lecha yamin yushmol, you must not turn aside from the sentence they tell you to the right or the left, has been applied to a Torah law and has so completely changed the law that it's like the law doesn't exist anymore. We read it every year. It's still there. But they've cleverly made decisions that if you follow their decisions, you will never follow through with the sentence. So you might ask, why can't we do this to other problematic halachot? There are other laws we read in Parashat Ki and, and others that seem objectionable. Maybe we should limit them in the same way of the stubborn and brilliant sun being limited, just out of existence. We could gather the best scholars of Midrash to just administer clever exegesis and, and interpret these laws out of our tradition. But wait. Before we get too excited, maybe we just slow down a minute. Before we simply take out, and I, I didn't bring it with me today, but take out the correction fluid, a.k.a. white out, and just start blotting out lines from the Torah scroll. Let's look back at the same section of the Talmud which declared that there never was or nor never will be a ben sorer umore. Following that statement, the Talmud asks a question. Why was this halakha written if it was never or ever to be implemented? It answers the question. So that you may study and receive a reward. So in other words, studying Torah is a reward in itself. The pursuit of Torah, the 
the process of how a law evolved is important. Studying this law should tell us how a son is supposed to behave and how a community is responsible for teaching the children and helping up bring them up. Most importantly, it teaches us how we should approach our traditions, how we should appreciate the lessons while allowing the sages who are experienced in Torah to shape our traditions so that it is applicable to every generation wherever we are, while never deviating from the core too much to the right or to the left. So, having said that, so the stubborn and rebellious son should be stoned to death. However, what the sages have put into place is we as a community, and including that stubborn and rebellious son, are responsible to study Torah and be brought up in Torah so that it will never happen. So they put something in place that actually makes us think. So as we study we find ourselves put in a position of, oh, that'll never happen, just like the sages said, because we've trained our children up the way they're supposed to go. And they know the right thing to do. So we now are responsible, have always been responsible, for our actions and the actions of our children. This is a, this is a bold statement I'm going to make here. Some may come up to me afterwards, but listen to the whole thing. We can change Torah. Oh, but only if we allow the Torah to change us. It's our perception sometimes of what Torah says that causes us to go the wrong way. We can change that by allowing Torah to straighten us out and change us to comply with what God has said. First, we must allow Torah to become a part of us. Those who are immersed in Torah and the lives of the godly people, our Torah scholars, under certain circumstances, can exercise the task of reshaping it. Not fully changing it, not taking away anything from it, but making us look at it in a different light. Because that's really what the Talmud is doing. It's causing us to look at it in a different light and understanding that this really isn't something that God wants us to do, We don't have to do it. Only under certain circumstances would we ever have to do it. The Talmud and our our sages have said that it will never happen because of what they wrote. If we study that and we understand that they're saying that there's a responsibility all the way around and certain circumstances it wouldn't apply, then there's never going to be a stoning of a stubborn and rebellious son. So, They can cause us to have a life of Torah. And we can do that if we're bound to the Torah. If we speak Torah day and night, maybe we too will have the merit or the ability to become closer to God, to know God's will and maybe even renew his Torah. Will will we be able to rewrite? No. But the renewing is the way we express the Torah with a new mindset. And we 
even to the extent of making left, right, and right, left, if it applies. Think about the severity of that law. But you look at Luke 15, Yeshua told the parable of the prodigal son. He was a rebellious and stubborn son. He demanded his inheritance, and he left with it. He squandered it, and he ended up being reduced to having to sleep among the pigs. Consequences from his actions. But the key is he came home a stinking mess. But he repented. That's the difference. If we immediately jump to what our passage today says, there's no room for repentance. The sages put in place, before Yeshua even came, a remedy so that the death sentence would not have to be carried out. If he doesn't meet these criteria, you don't stone him. So there never has been one and there never will be one because he will never be stubborn and rebellious because he's been brought up in the right way. So God welcomes back those who repent. He mourns the loss of anyone that stumbles and falls and ends up among the pigs. But he shows him love when he comes back in repentance. Is that any different from how the Lord redeems us when we've walked down the wrong road? And then we realize, I made a mistake, and we come back to our senses and repent? That's the beauty of God's mercy and grace. Period. Think about this. No comments from back there. Do you listen to the messages each week and then think about them during the week? So I have a question. As we work our way through the Torah readings week after week and you listen, do you put yourself in these examples? Or do you hear them and think, that's talking about somebody else. It doesn't apply to me. Let's think about that, especially as we're approaching the High Holy Days. Not allowing anything to distract us from our first love and our loyalty to God. Let's all make the decision to ask him for strength. Just like the prodigal son came to his senses and repented and returned, let's us all repent and return to the straight and narrow path. Here's a key thing, too. God watches us, but others watch us too. Let's all become examples to others who might be weak and in need. We should become the example so that when people are feeling weak, when people are feeling in in that place of desperation, they can see us and say, I need to talk to them because I need what they have. Have you ever done that? I've done that. I've looked at someone and said, you know what? I need that. I need forgiveness. 
I need restoration. I need healing. I need what that person's experiencing. I need to go see that person and see what's going on. It's one way I ended up walking with the Lord. I saw what was going on around me. I saw my wife. I saw the teachings going around. And finally the question was asked, have you ever thought about what you would do when the Lord returns? Would you be left or would you be going with him? I want somebody to look at me thinking that they need to come see me because they are in a position that I once was, that we all once were. I want to be able to say that the love of God is shining through me so brightly that I'm drawing people to him. Not to me, but to him. I'm just a conduit. I'm just the mouthpiece. All the rest of it is him. He uses all of us to reach out to others, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our community. Let's determine to become more about what Torah tells us to be, and we never have to worry about the consequences of those 365 negative mitzvot because they'll never apply to us. Yes, they don't apply now because there's no temple. Okay, you could say that. But if you're walking in the, in the path that God has sent, set forth for us, never have to worry about them because we're not going to fall into those pitfalls that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Stay on the narrow path with God and you avoid the 365 pitfalls of what we're not supposed to do. And we also be able to take the 248 positive mitzvot and accomplish them all that we can. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you and we bless you because it is with, with you that we do all, our th- all that we do. It is, it is without you that we can't do it. It is without you that we stumble and we fall. But as we approach these days, Lord God, uh, as we're repenting and searching ourselves, we pray that you would cause us to search as very deeply, deeply as you do, so that we will be re- it would be revealed to us where we have fallen short. You reveal to us what we need to fix in our relationship with you and with one another. Lord, we, we want to be pleasing not only to you but to others. We want your love. We want your mercy. We want your grace, but we want not to keep it to ourselves, but we want to share it with everyone we come into contact with. Let us be a beacon that draws people to you. Let us be that light that when they see it, they know it's you. They will see us and say, we need what they have. I need what he has. I need what she has. Help us, Lord, to become those people that draw men unto you. If there's stubbornness, if there's rebelliousness, if there's any kind of sin in us, search our hearts and know our thoughts. Show us that wicked way in us that we may turn from it, that we may seek you for forgiveness and seek you for direction. We bless you. We thank you because you are great and you're greatly to be praised. And we give you all honor and all glory in Yeshua's name.